We know that about 70% of people are lying in their online dating profiles. Hello, it's Matt Rubel, and welcome to Retails from the Frontline, where we take you on a journey to things that are happening with consumers and out there in the world that are interesting and new. Today, we are going to go dating. That's right. We're going to take you on a date or at least figure out how to get one or not to get one with someone who you don't want with Dr. Jess, Dr. Jess Carbino, who is a relationship and online dating expert, not just the, but she is the original one. She has a PhD in sociology that she got at UCLA and is the expert in do we swipe right or swipe left and how do we know about it? So welcome, Dr. Jess. It's uh, great to be with you here today in New York. Thank you, Matt. It's my pleasure to be here. So tell me a little bit about how did you end up getting so fascinated with online dating? I think like many sociologists, we become immersed in the world and want to study the subjects that are most captivating to our current lives. When I was a graduate student at UCLA in 2009, this obviously predates app-based dating. Web-based dating obviously existed since 1995, but I was really interested in trying to understand how do I meet somebody outside the confines of my office in Haynes Hall at UCLA? And it was really difficult. The pickings were slim. And I wasn't finding anyone on campus that I was interested in meeting. So I did what any nice Jewish girl would do, according to my grandmother, and signed up for J-Date. And I was absolutely fascinated by what I saw. I came into UCLA thinking I would study parent-child relationships, but quickly became captivated by the pool of individuals who were in the market in Los Angeles. And not only was I looking at the men who would theoretically be prospects for me, but I was also analyzing the competition, the other women in my area who shared my characteristics. So this sounds like business. I mean, you were out there saying, okay, I need my competitive set. I need to know who I'm going. What's my target market? Was there anything out there that gave you the ability to understand that? Or did you have to go and figure out how to create it on your own? Well, it was a bit of both. I think that Unlike Tinder or Hinge or Bumble, in which if you set your parameters for woman-seeking man or man-seeking woman or man-seeking man, woman-seeking woman, what have you, you are only able to see the people who are the opposite gender or the people in whom you're interested. You can't see the other women or other men around you who are in the field. So I had the capacity to go in at that time and analyze how are these women presenting themselves? Are they showing photos of themselves with their families? Are they showing themselves in a provocative manner? Are the men showing themselves as being more serious? Are they showing themselves as being more playful? And I was really interested in how gender was performed in that way and how men and women were branding themselves and trying to sell themselves to a potential romantic partner. Did men sell themselves more seriously or, you know, as a person who can support you, or more fun? And did women present themselves seriously or in a sensual way? Well, what's really interesting, I think, from that initial study was that it supported what I've later found through my research. So from a cursory glance, I wasn't doing anything systematic at that time because as a sociologist at a university, you need to have IRB approval. You need to have somebody buying in and saying, yes, you have permission to use this data. And because Spark is a publicly traded entity which owns JDAID, I didn't have their permission to go in and use their data. It was perfectly fine for my own personal use. So I started doing a cursory look and I saw that it was very gendered. Men were trying to present themselves more seriously 
seriously. And they did that through the clothing they wore. And women did it through the same way. They presented themselves in a very gendered way by not wearing clothing that was very masculine in nature. And that was later shown out through a study I did at Tinder where I found out of 12,000 photos in which women were presenting themselves, no woman wore a long sleeve button-down shirt in any of their photos, which I thought was really interesting because overwhelmingly men were doing that. And I understand that long sleeve button-down shirts are far more masculine than they are feminine, but we know that fashion trends certainly have changed and women are wearing menswear or men-like clothing far more often than they have been historically. So it was just really fascinating to see that overwhelmingly women are trying to tailor their appearance to come off as very feminine, which makes sense. They are trying to sell themselves as a romantic partner, and I think that people still lean into certain stereotypes or certain understandings regarding gender when trying to present themselves. So when when you were looking at this, I mean, you know, we're in a day and age where women are equal to men and women are presenting themselves in the business world as equal. But what you're saying is when it actually came down to dating and mating, they didn't want to present themselves that way or found it less effective? Well, I think that there's a difference between physical presentation and presentation regarding the things they desire, the things that they're looking for. And one of the interesting things that I found through my research, however, is is consistent with what you're saying. It's really interesting to see how when women are talking about themselves and talking about the romantic partners that they're looking for, that they rely on very gendered language. So for example, when describing themselves or describing their partners, they're mirroring what they want by saying, I want to find someone who is kind. That's one of the top phrases that women use in their bios when describing a male romantic partner. So what are the key attributes that a guy has to do to put himself forward as kind, whether it's visually or verbally in some sort of a thing where they would fill out their profile? If kind is number one, what do I have to do to present myself as kind? Well, some of it is subconscious. What An interesting study that was done at UCLA by somebody who was my mentor, Marty Hazelton, which was really interesting, was when she studied women's analysis of photographs of men to determine their level of attractiveness. And she found that when women were, and she was following them over their menstrual cycle, and she found that when women were ovulating, they were more likely to be interested in men who presented with a far stronger jawline. But when they were not ovulating and they were not fertile, they were more likely to prefer a man who had a softer jawline because that's a signal of kindness, compassion, and less masculine behaviors, which they associate with narcissism. So there are so many subconscious cues that we don't know about that are just playing out within our own minds. But at the same time, there are obviously far more cues that are actually overt. And these are things that men can do, such as trying to post a photo of themselves with a pet, which I found has no statistically significant effect for either men or women getting swept right on. And about 10% of men and women include pets in their photos. A lot of men try to signal wanting to seem compassionate or kind through having a baby in their photos or posting photos with family, for instance, that are obviously family-related photos. People don't necessarily take kindly to the baby photos, especially women. Women don't ever post photos with babies because that sends off a very... Obligation. Yes, obligation and direct signal, wanted husband, sperm donor now. So essentially that's something that's very off-putting for men to see, and women don't do it at a high rate, but men tend to do it more. So there are lots of ways that women are subconsciously and, and consciously trying to weed out who is compassionate or not wow, this is fascinating. But you can't tell, obviously, what period in time it is for someone in terms of how they're feeling every month. People don't dynamically change their profiles. So 
to know that somebody is looking at their profile when they're in a certain state versus another state. The things that they would end up doing is just to present themselves in a straightforward, happy way. And whether the jawline is straight, showing narcissism, or, you know, it's a little more slack, they just have to be themselves, I guess. Well, I don't think men can get can get plastic surgery that easily on a monthly basis, so I certainly wouldn't recommend that. Do they Photoshop, though? When I look at these photos, you know, I was looking at some online prior to you coming in, and I was like, wow, does the person really look like that? And then a lot of them put these big eyes on or something like that. Are, are these photographs real? Well, I think that one thing that you're referring to are the, like, the Instagram filters where they're trying to look silly, for example. Those don't very, play well among people who are over the age of 24. Those are considered to be very playful, young, uh, very much akin to Snapchat. But I definitely think that people are certainly engaging in a high degree of Photoshopping when they are putting together their photo package. I think Instagram has led us to this point where people feel as though how they look in regular life cannot necessarily be displayed in a photograph to the public or to their group of friends. People are really trying to present the best self that they possibly can. And by trying to use Photoshop as a mechanism by which to smooth out lines, wrinkles, blemishes, et cetera, they really are able to accomplish that. Men and women are both engaging in Photoshop to a high degree. I think it's more filtering than anything else. I don't think people are sitting there, you know, making themselves look significantly thinner or significantly more attractive than they otherwise would. I think it's far more filtering. I don't think the vast majority of online daters are that sophisticated. And if somebody does do that, is there any data that says that if you alter your photograph more materially than when you actually meet the person, then the likelihood that they won't go on a second date is higher? I haven't conducted any studies, and there are no studies to my knowledge out there that show whether or not people who engage in more, let's say, call it deceptive with air quotes around it, behavior in terms of photo modification, whether they are more or less likely to get a second date than someone who isn't. And that's, I think, because the degree of deception or the degree to which they've modified their photo is highly variable. I certainly know people who I personally talk to who are friends of mine, and they show me their online dating photos. And I look at their profiles, and I see there's a high degree of to which they are making themselves look better through either the makeup they're using, the, the filters they're using, and also modifying their weight. And I, I actually tell people, you know, does this work for you? Because I think there is a lot of misconceptions when people do meet. And we know that about 70% of people are lying in their online dating profiles when they're out there. They're, that's been established by studies. And it's 70%, 70% are lying. Yes. So this is kind of like going to the bar. And you know they're lying at the bar, but here on the online thing where they're actually putting it down in writing and somebody can know it, they're still lying 70% of the time. It's mainly about things related to height, weight, and age. The age-related issue is so that people, namely women who are older, can fall into a certain age bracket, let's say 40 to 49 rather than 51, for instance, and then be filtered out of searches. That's mainly why they're doing it. And then often they will put in their bios, disclaimer, I am 49, so that they people will ostensibly know the reason why they did it. And then people often fudge their height and their weight. My husband says that he's <laughs> my husband said that he was 5'9 his profile. My husband is 5'8. There's no doubt about it. But he tells people regularly that he's 5'9, whether it's his dating profile or in person. But I think that those types of lies or deceptive answers are far less critical to people. I think people don't care as much if you're 5'8 or 5'9. There are women who are very sensitive to height, and I've certainly seen that bore on many focus groups and interviews. And I think it's very interesting how fixated on height people are. But the degree of deception is variable. And I think that ultimately, when you meet somebody, you're not going to really know if they're 5'8 or 5'9. You're not going to know if they're 
you know, 120 pounds or 130 pounds probably. But you will know if they're, you know, 150 pounds or 250 pounds. And I think that's the So it's only really appearances and age stage that kind of have certain certain lies. The other the other things that they're lying about are much much less. Like, oh, I'm a millionaire or oh, you know, I I like boating or, you know, some other some other thing like that. Correct. I think occupational and interest based lies are far fewer. One thing that people do say to me, which is really interesting, is that people often present the version of themselves not only that they feel is most attractive to others about themselves, but also that they find to be most attractive about themselves. When I see those types of reports from people, they're really talking about how they find that people are showing the snapshot of their life that is really appealing, but not necessarily consistent with their daily life. And people find that to be rather irksome. And I find that to be really interesting because they're not able to reconcile that they're doing the same thing. For example, people often show themselves traveling or people often show themselves doing a sport like boating. And the vast majority of people aren't out there boating every weekend. And if they are, wonderful for them. But that's not reality. But people often get really upset and they say, well, how can, how real can this be? This person can't be on the boat all the time. They're a physician. How can they possibly be on a boat? And it's something that's aspirational. It's something they would like to do. It's something that they do do. But people get really upset about that and say, well, this probably isn't real. This person's just highlighting who they want to be rather than who they are. You know, in the consumer products business, we all think about the key drivers of purchase intent and the key drivers of engagement. And there's a hierarchy based on different categories. So in the category of relationships and sex, are relationships and sex, do they have the same key drivers of purchase intent, you know, when you're online dating? Or can people tell, ooh, this is really for a hookup and this is for a relationship? I think it's variable. And I think that's because men and women's intentions are variable. And I think this is really interesting and leads to a strong disconnect between men and women. There are certain instances where you can tell people are probably not looking for something serious. They're photographing themselves in every photo. They're with friends, partying. You know, they're dressed in a suggestive manner. They have alcohol in a variety of their photos. They're not engaging with people in terms of trying to put a really thoughtful bio out there about themselves. I think that's when people can certainly say, not interested in something serious. I think, though, that in terms of relationships, it's far more nuanced. And I think men and women often have a really big disconnect between each other in this regard. I meet a variety of women who say to me, this guy said he was interested in a romantic relationship, and then he just wanted to have sex with me. And I think that it's very interesting to think about this because when I talk to men and I interview them, they tell me I am interested in a romantic relationship. I just was not interested in a romantic relationship with this woman. And women who are in their late 20s and early 30s, when they decide that they want to find a romantic partner, they decide to set the boundary of not engaging in casual sex most often because they want to try to find somebody serious and they're not interested in engaging in that type of relationship anymore. Whereas men tell me, If a woman is interested in having sex with me, even though I know that she might not be the person or is most likely not the person that I'm interested in being with long term, I'm not going to turn that down. And so I think it's really interesting to see this disconnect between men and women and their understandings in terms of self-presentation about what they want. So in a world where we're politically correct with everything, it seems as though some of the things that you uncover through data and through the reality of research say that men and women are different and men and women have different behaviors and we need to just accept that and move within that. I think that's true. I'm reading a book right now. I'm rereading it. It's called You Just Don't Understand by Deborah Tannen. And it goes back to how men and women communicate with each other and how we're socialized to communicate and how men and women 
from the youngest ages, from three and four, we can observe differences generally in terms of communication or relationship building and how men communicate with other men in terms of trying to achieve status and hierarchy within a group and how women try to build connection and rapport with each other and how they negotiate those objectives in very different ways. And I think men and women are different. And I think that men and women can be equal in a variety of ways in terms of intellect, in terms of being able to participate equally in the labor force. But in terms of sex and dating, men and women are really, really different. We have different drives biologically. We're socialized differently. And I think that certainly we should be held accountable in terms of acting in a responsible and safe way. But at the same time, I think it's important to accept that people are different. Just as women are different from other women, men are different from other men, men and women are certainly different from each other. So you started off with women's number one key driver of intent with someone is kindness. What would be the key driver for men? Finding somebody who is interesting and easygoing. Interesting and easygoing. Yes. Because they just want to get along. So when someone is filling out a profile, is the verbal more important or the visual? Well, the visual is what captures the initial attention to draw you in to allow them to see the verbal. What was really fascinating to me is through a lot of the research I've done, both survey and interview and focus groups, is that people tell me that the really, the most important thing is that your first photo shows you as being attractive. That's really all that matters to people is that the first photo captures your attention and like retail then draws you in to learn more about the rest of the products. I, th- I, I think it's very similar to selling a car, for example. You see the beautiful photo of a Ford Mustang and then you say, I have to know more about this car. And then you read more and learn more about it and you learn about the engine, the horsepower, et cetera. And then you say, I need to go to the dealer and buy this car. And it's really interesting to think about it from that perspective. But we are we are physically inclined individuals, especially when it comes to romantic relationships. We're very visual. We want to know and understand our romantic partner. So I think it makes a lot of sense that people are interested in having that first photo be the driver. And then subsequently, they need to know more, especially women. Women are far more likely to be thorough in their analysis up front than their male counterparts. And I've seen some statistics that say that women are more discriminating than men in terms of like when they look at it, let's say on Tinder, the number that swipes right versus swipes left. What are the differences there? Oh, I'm sure there's some statistical difference. Oh, it's astronomical. I think the average swipe right rate ratio for a woman on Tinder or Bumble is about 40%, whereas for men, it's four. So it, men really don't have a chance. So this leads to a real structural difference in terms of swiping behavior. Men can't afford to be discriminating, which is really, really upsetting and unfortunate. So this, I think, leads to a huge disconnect subsequently in the rest of the dating process because people are getting matches that are not meaningful matches because men are swiping right. I wouldn't say completely indiscriminate. 40% of the time. 40% of the time. Men are just saying, fine, hey, she'll be she'll, okay. She'll, she'll be, be okay. okay. She'll be okay. She'll be okay. And then after matching, they're subsequently doing the analysis of, am I actually interested in messaging this person? Yay, I got a match, but is this somebody I'd actually be reasonably interested in going out with? And there are a lot of deal breakers that people potentially could have in a photo or in their bio that they don't become aware of until ultimately matching. And because dating is so gendered and women often wait for men to message them first, on many apps, there is often a real disconnect where women feel very upset that men are not messaging them after matching because the men realize that the match wasn't meaningful, but the women think the match was meaningful because they're swiping in a manner that is more deliberate. So a guy should really pay attention. If a woman has swiped right on him, then it probably, she went through 10 profiles at least before she found one. And he should realize that, you know, hey, this one is really interested. So there's 
there's something here to to think about. So, Jess, what about you? You're recently married, cool town in Austin. Tell us about how you met your husband. Sure. Well, Joel and I met on three different dating apps. We matched on three different dating apps in the same day. We matched on Hinge, JSwipe, and Tinder. And we started dating after knowing each other for a very brief period of time and were together for four years and recently married. That's great. So do people go on multiple apps? I mean, is that is that actually a better way of going? And we'll get back to the bar versus, you know, or the bar, the concert or the party versus online dating in a second. But I mean, is multiple apps better? Well, people use a portfolio approach. The average online dater is on two or three apps at a given time. And I find that most people start out with one app, and that's normally Tinder. I find I call it the gateway app. It really is sort of the way of getting your feet really wet. You learn the basic apparatus of how all of the dating apps work. It shows you essentially the entire dating pool. It's a very wide swath of people. And it's really interesting because it's relatively representative of the general population in the United States. So that's really exciting to see how Tinder has really democratized dating and brought dating in terms of technological use to a population that historically didn't have access to it because initially it was very strongly used only by white, highly educated men because they were the ones who had desktop computers in 1995. So let's get down into the effectiveness of the date. So, okay, we find somebody online. Does it work or is it better to meet them in person? I mean, if first meetings happen in person, is there a higher likelihood that those people will end up in a relationship that's fulfilling and end up, if that ends up being marriage or whatever? Or is it more effective with online and do people do online today more than than actually meeting in person for the first meeting? Sure. Well, 40% of the single Americans are using online dating, which is an astounding number. It's staggering to think about it. And one in three Americans who married in the last year met their partner online. And online dating has become the number one way that people meet their romantic partners over and above family, friends, other social institutions, et cetera. So it's the way of the future. It's I mean, the it's the way of, the of today. It's and the, the way, way of today of in the future. I, I absolutely think that. I think that online dating will certainly morph into a variety of other mechanisms, and I think it will change. But I think that people will use technology to meet in a very meaningful way. What's interesting is that what you raised regarding whether or not it's more effective to meet in person versus online. And I think that the primary issue is that the goal of an online dating app is to ultimately move you offline. The only way that dating apps can continue to get customers is that people have to be successful because then people have a social learning effect and then other people who learn about it through their friends, family, et cetera, will join the apps. There have been some studies out of the University of Chicago that show that people who met online and married have more stable relationships than people who met offline. It's too early to say in terms of the longitudinal data. It's also problematic because there are obviously biases associated with people who are online. They clearly were committed. They wanted to meet. These, this data is relatively early, or these people clearly had intent. So I think that what will be interesting to see is now that dating is more democratized, and at the same time, marriage has become far more selective and far more of a status item for people in terms of marriage rates declining dramatically in the U.S. and people who are theoretically more likely to stay married, being the people who are getting married, I think it'll be interesting to see how online dating affects that. And I'm not sure that there will be a statistically significant difference once it becomes more widespread in the general population. I think it'll just be an effect of the status of the individuals who are marrying in terms of their socioeconomic backgrounds, age, et cetera. So people have different theories about there is that one special person for me, or there's multiple special people for me. It's the, it happened in the right time or the right place. Is there any data that would indicate one or the other? 
There isn't. I think that we have different theoretical constructions of love. I think that we rely on this very romanticized version of love, which I call romantic love. And other sociologists have called it that before me, obviously. And it's very much myth-based. It's the ideas of love at first sight and one true love, et cetera. And then there's also this more prosaic version of love that people hold that's based upon their understandings of love, based upon their socialization. So based upon their own personal experiences dating as a young person, or based upon their experiences observing their parents or family and friends. And that's how they understand love. I think those are two ways of thinking about love, but I think also, and my research shows that there's a more market-based version of love, whereby individuals are able to maximize for what they want. People have an understanding that it would be great to find the person who fulfills my every want, need, wish, etc. But people understand that love is not like a fairy tale or a movie. At the same time, they're not going to just settle for just anybody. That that's that comes into play as well. They're, they have this sober view of love based upon what they've experienced or observed, but at the same time, they still have this ideal. So I think people are constantly negotiating that and trying to recognize that reality. And I think it becomes most manifest and most interesting to observe in the online dating context because people can actually, in real time, see how they fare dating online. So we've moved from fancy, you know, sign up and I'll find you a husband or a wife kind of things mm-hmm. that were only for the rich and the elite to mm-hmm. now it's democratized and and it's out there for everybody. It's an interesting thing because if you're selling any one thing in the world, love is the most important aspiration that anybody has. So what would be the biggest aha that you've had like when you got into this and you said, wow, I never realized. A recent aha moment that was really interesting to me was some research that I recently did about ghosting behavior. I think it's really interesting to see and hear about people ghosting, both in terms of their romantic life as well as work and personal. I think people are becoming far less capable and also responsible in terms of their ability to correspond with people. And that's really disappointing generally. But in terms of romantic partnerships, I found that the number one emotion people experience when they've been ghosted by somebody, rather than having it be anger or frustration, is anxiety. They don't understand what happened and they're trying to make sense of it. And I would assume that if somebody was ghosted, that they would be angry. That's my number one reaction normally when somebody ghosts me. I feel very angry or frustrated. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't compute to me. And I have a ton of anxiety. I'm Jewish. But my anxiety manifests itself in other ways. But I thought it was interesting for people to say that that was the number one emotion they experienced. I think that people are not as introspective as they should be and not able to analyze the situation as easily as they could. And I think it's very difficult for people to step back and understand the dynamics of what's occurring and what's happening and really think thoughtfully about romantic relationships. It's hard for anybody. That's why so many of us have therapists to help us think about it more. So you're the first PhD (laughs) in online dating in the world. You know more about people's behaviors from online behavior and things that you've been able to track and you have more data than anybody else. So Dr. Jess, when we want to learn something about you that's not online, what would our listeners not find online that would be most interesting and give us insight into you? About me personally? Yes. I am obsessed with the real real. If that's, if that's something I could share. I think that it is the most fascinating place out there. I've always believed that one man's trash is another man's treasure. I think that having the ability to be able to find something that makes you happy in terms of clothing can really 
just change your day, change your outlook. The way we present ourselves to the world is so complex. And I think that clothing can really help people do that. (laughs) We've just spent our time with the person who understands online dating and who understands not just love and clothing, but love and how to discover it. I'm sure there's going to be people who are going to want to get in touch with you. You have drjesscarbino.com and they can learn more about what you're doing. You're coming out with a book, I think, too, or rewriting. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book that you're coming about? Uh, coming up with? Sure. Well, I don't have the title yet. I'm still working on that. A couple different things are ruminating right now. I wanted to write a book that would help people understand online dating, not necessarily from an advice-driven perspective, but from the perspective of trying to explain how human behavior is so fundamental in everything we do when we're dating online and how men and women are different from each other and trying to understand the disconnect between men and women to help us try to think more objectively about our own behavior. So it's sort of a Gladwellian perspective on why we're behaving the way we are in terms of online dating. We're here with Dr. Jess Carbino, who is the preeminent person in online dating in the world. And we have learned about love today. So thank you for joining us for Retails from the Frontline, where we are exploring great things happening out there in the world of brands, consumers, and sociology. I'm Matt Rubel. Thanks for joining us.